Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can change the world. The leadership DNA, really what is it? Why is it valuable? And what can it do for society and companies at large? Uh, that leadership DNA, what constitutes it? What elements are about it? And how does it move from me to we? to give it scale, that, that's a legitimate question. And there's two leaders who I've been tracking for quite some time now. They first were showing their thought leadership in enterprise security risk management. And now they're touching all sorts of components of leadership from uh, technology uh, to um, uh, this, this genome of kindness to this idea of there's a discipline methodology to getting at your purpose, passion. They're all over the map, but with one constant, they want to have a tremendous impact on their families, their community, their business, and their world. And so I'd like to bring back Tim Wenzel and Jonathan Harris. Tim Wenzel is the head of global security, um, privacy, protection at Facebook, and Jonathan Harris is vice president of Group 337, my good friend, Lee Otis, out there, a nod to him. Hi, guys. Back to the great conversation. Thanks for having Man, us. I thought that intro was always pre-recorded, but you just yeah. like went right into like radio mode, and that was impressive. Like, I thought I was good, but man, Ron, you killed it. I, 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 you know what? I'm just too simple of a man to have a recording uh, and, and somebody actually came to me the other day and said, Ron, you should put an advertisement in the middle of every great conversation. And I go, I just can't do it. I just can't do it because I, I wouldn't stop if you were next to the fireplace with me with a glass of wine and say, hold on for a commercial break. I just, you know, it, it upsets my whole thing if that if that matters. Right. So. So anyway, I am what I am, folks. Let's catch up. Last time I talked to you on The Great Conversation was around enterprise security risk management. And um, my, my God, sometimes it's, it, it, it just reverts to, oh, it's another practice of security leaders. But you guys are starting to tease out that it may be much more. Uh, help me understand that conversation you're having in the background. Let us get privy to Jonathan Tim as they talk about ESRM. Yeah, well, Tim, I'll start um, and uh, and kick it over to you. So if, if you've been, specifically Tim has been like on a crusade with ESRM uh, this year, uh, like speaking to every ASIS chapter like in the world around it to really try to get it out to people and, and, and out to them in such a way where it's not just this like, document you download and you read a few things and you go implement like they're, they're like if you go back and i won't go into the details but i'm sure it'll be linked to the in this go listen to the one we did last time where we unpack it and talk to it and 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 if you look at late uh, tim on linkedin you'll find a lot of the other um sessions that he's done well we started to have a conversation around and it was it was after tim took a sabbatical five weeks off from work um and we were catching up around how what it kind of synthesize it down to a single discussion question was how did ESRM or the application thereof to Tim's organization enable him to take a sabbatical? Like how did, like, I guess the theory was that it did. And then 
proving him, you know, like having him tell me how did it, did it actually, and what are the things to it? So, so that's what we started to talk about. And a couple of things layered out from there that, that the principles of ESRM laid the groundwork, but they then enabled um, the trust and the leadership and the, and, and uh, the kind of uh, reduction of ego for Tim to be able to let go and let the team be and let the machine run so that he, and he, you know, cause it would only work if he let it work. And so it was just this really interesting concept around um, ESRM, not just being a framework for security, but a framework for, for team development and then leadership development, maybe leadership enablement is the way to put it, um, that, that we were really excited to share the kind of this, uh, this like next level aha moment that we have. We we're like, wow, it's more than just making sure bad people don't get into your buildings. And, and, and Tim, this is interesting uh, because I'm sorry, I can't help myself. I just read an article um, in one of the security magazines by Jess Slotnick. He's a risk consultant, okay? Yeah, Slotnick's a good friend. Slotnick's a good friend of the Kindness Games and also the Great Conversation. And, and Slotnick's writing to integrators, saying this, this is a key value framework and you're missing out on it. It, it, it. It's a key equation to doing exactly what Jonathan said for a whole other dimension of the ecosystem. So I think you're onto something, both of you. I think, I think, yeah, ESRM can be a series of tasks, go through it. It can be a certification. It can be a practice. It can be a document. But fundamentally, what you're suggesting, Jonathan, is this is a leadership program. It's a mindset, right? It's a change of mind to how you perceive and manipulate your environment around you. Okay, so help us understand then, Tim, how did you, as you make this tour around all these as-is sites, um, how are you helping them cross the chasm from document and practice to mindset? How, how are you doing that? Well, um, well first, first of all, how'd, how'd, you do it, how'd you do it for yourself first and your team? Because I want to know how to take a five-week sabbatical. Well, so actually that started with some really good mentors who actually were working with me um, as I transitioned from government into private and they were setting up scenarios. What are you working on? How would this, how would that? And really engaging my thought processes and challenging them with questions designed to get to the, the deeper logic of why was my brain tracking this way? And then they would point out um, what were some principles of ESRM and what were not, and what types of logical thought patterns actually were scalable, were sustainable, were, would work across a lot of different situations and environments and, and industry sectors, and which would die if I left executive protection. Right. Um, and so really that was invaluable. I also come from healthcare. So day one, when I was 17, um, 18, I'm sorry, I started learning the patient assessment. And that is a framework that I have applied. It's a scientific framework of assessment. What is the pain that I'm being asked to take care of? How did this pain get here? It's root cause analysis, and that works through everything, right? And so by identifying 
why what we do is important and what it actually solves for and how can we measure that? And then how can we measure the perception of that measurement and align all these things? This is really a management tool, a mindset tool that helps you frame, what is my purpose here? What value am I bringing? And do I have to bring up statistics of door alarms and kind of say, well, this is what this means. Don't look behind the curtain. Um, so really when John and I started talking, I, I, I heard the conversation. I was like, hey, um, <laughs> you were gone for five weeks. Like, how is it coming back? Kind of like fail, right? And, uh, and, you know, actually, you know, it's always tough coming back from a trip like that. But the thing is, um, can you set your people up to thrive when you walk away or when you're sent away? And, 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 and that is one thing that I've really focused on. My team, even though I'm the head of it, does not revolve around me. It doesn't stumble without me um, over the short term. Right. And that comes from designing a team where everybody knows why they're doing what they're doing, what risks they're actually solving. And when this operation applied to this risk may no longer be viable and how to re-implement the design process to create a viable prototype to put in place for new risks, environments, threats, etc. And literally when I uh, took my leave, I had a director at work come up to me and be like, hey, you know, I just want to know um, what's your plan. I told him the plan. Great. But what are you really worried about? And I said, I have zero worries. And I will be shocked. Absolutely shocked. And probably somebody will be in trouble if you hear from my team, unless there's a new thing that kicks off that everybody's figuring out. And he was like, really? That's pretty bold. And I said, well, we'll see how it goes when I come back. And when I came back, how's the team? Never heard from them. And we had incidents. And I think that's a success. So I want to I want to pull some threads that I just heard. Um, the first thing I heard is, uh, and I'm going to use my own words as a paraphrase, but I think it still captures what you intended. The first mindset you have, and I almost want to call it a core value, is you want to build something that lasts. You want to build something that lasts. And if you're building something that lasts, one day you may not be there maybe a five-week sabbatical, it may be leaving Facebook, but you want to build something of value that lasts. And that takes a corresponding core value that you don't believe in the scarcity principle that most human beings believe in, that I've got to have mine. And if I don't have mine, somebody else has it. And now I'm deficient. Is, is that a correct statement? I would say you're really close. I would correct it to say that something that lasts is actually a result further down the road of building something that provides stability. Have you ever been under pressure to perform and you had no answers to the questions that you needed to answer to make the critical decisions? 
I have, and I refuse to build a team to where they are dependent on me to provide those answers to where they cannot work together to create those answers based on the program foundations we have built that are sustainable through any foreseeable. You're, you're teaching them a way of thinking that can respond to any situation. Starting with day zero, the first time they get the email and the phone call, like, congratulations, we've decided to hire you. I'm sending you email, start reading these things. This is what we're going to be talking about. And it has nothing to do with the job. It has everything to do with the team. And I, I want to touch on something in there real quick because the the scarcity mindset thing. You know, Tim, you've heard you've heard me bring that up a lot as like an industry challenge. Um, but I but I think it's it, it comes between also a leader and their ego, and and that they have to be the most important person in the equation. So it, it, it ends up affecting a lot of things that I have to know more information than everybody. I have to be more important. If I don't know, then it's wrong. And, and that is incompatible with the culture and the output that Tim has created because, and, and the unintended consequence for that is there's a, there's a couple of them. One, then Tim can't leave or if he does, it falls apart. So if you want to build something bigger than yourself, then it has to run without you. And people are scared of that because if it does, then what value do I have? Now, Tim knows the value that he has is that he's created the engine, right? Like, you know, when Ford created the assembly line, he could have put every engine together himself and made it the Ford. Like I personally touched these, but then, you know, the car, there would, there would be 10 cars instead of, you know, 10,000 of them. And so if you want to really supercharge, you have to get out of the way. You got to build it first, but then be smart enough to get out of the way and let it hum and let it run. Um, and then not be afraid that that one day it won't need you. I think that's where like that that kind of like that that perfect relationship between a self-aware leader that gets to a place where like eventually I want to be able like to to leave and do other things. Like if I'm doing the same thing here forever, then there's probably something wrong with the machine. I've designed the program wrong. I think the way that Tim has 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 laid out the 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 the, the design thinking that he's done and put into the program is with that eventuality in mind. It might be five years, ten years, tomorrow. It doesn't matter because like the baseline is going to continue to shift. The pandemic happened, so now Tim had to readjust to an entire new baseline, which his framework and design and ESRM made that capable so now when the next thing happens it's just like okay reset redesign readjust and 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 move on and i can still take five weeks off in the middle of a pandemic like that's that's like the thing that got me so interested in asking about it because i i'm looking around the industry and some folks are like i can't leave for a week i can't take a night off well so here, that's here's the best thing fault. that's their fault not anyone else's fault in my opinion sorry Tim. When I came back, my team remained in charge for my first week so I could catch up. I didn't need to regain control. I just caught up and let them run things and continue to submit reports and, and make decisions. It was perfect. Um, but everything you said, John, is true. But my actual 
Um, from my personal experience, I have had roles. I've had jobs to where every morning I get up and I say, what am I going to walk into today? And I refuse to have a team that is managed via consequence. And, and so even getting more basic than what you're talking about, I want a positive environment for me and for my team. So yes, I create the engine, but I also create the roof. And the roof is not just me taking the blowback because even things in security done right produce blowback, but it's codifying that roof in policy so that when something happens like, oh, yep, before we entertain all this, there is a policy, a debrief, a process that we have to go through to fully understand what, why, and how, so we can deliver that understanding to you before we get the feedback. And it creates an environment where my people are exceedingly com comfortable operating. You're also modeling a, um, you're also modeling a framework for human value too. Um, I, I'm gonna test a logic ladder with you, Tim. And, and Jonathan, I'm gonna be asking you how you might apply this framework in group 337 Try, uh, whose purpose is to actually provide insights into how technology is impacting our profession and, and how that's gonna impact your, your business model, this kind of framework. So I wanna come back to you on this, but Tim, here's what I see, okay? And, and you know, it's that old saying, when we're raising kids in that first seven years of life, uh, you can say all you want, but they really learn by the way you behave. Uh, right? They, it's what you do, not what you say. So you've taken this core value, this, this, um, this built to last core value, this scarcity principle, abundance principle, core value, you're modeling it. And then you're also constructing a logic ladder, a, pra a new practice, we'll call it. ERCM is a good envelope for security, but you're, you're going beyond this by saying, we're going to have we're going to have a way of inquiry that leads us to data that we can synthesize and form a hypothesis on and test that leads us to appropriate action. It's, it's a whole mindset or logic ladder that allows them to be really empowered to solve any problem, not just a security problem. Absolutely. Um, I call it leading with kindness. So kindness it can be fluffy, like, oh, we all must be super kind to each other. It should be utopia. But actually, I define kindness or leading with kindness um, as what if I considered the human on the other side of every conversation, every performance issue, every incident, every negotiation, every situation I encounter in life. And if I considered them in my position, how would I want to craft this experience to be the most beneficial for them. So you can actually go through incidents and debriefs and inquiries. You can go through performance issues and treat people humanely and not only solve the problem, but keep them wanting more, keep them engaged and not looking for something else. And so we're going through performance reviews right now at work. And I literally had a conversation. Somebody was going to write feedback on me and he said, 
how do you deliver the way you deliver? Because nobody delivers, well, not many people deliver projects and deliverables like you do. They're so easy to use. And I said, well, because I say, if I were you, who do I have to deliver this to? Who do I have to report on? Who do I have to communicate? And if you'll notice, we gather that information on our assessments. We can try to give you that 90% deliverable that you can just copy and paste and only have five to 10% to tweak. And that's what makes it easy. And that's leading with kindness because you're trying to interact with everybody based on what they require, what they need. There's a three-dimensional model forming here because ESRM is a risk management process. Uh, we just overlaid a core value on top of it, a mindset on top of it. And then there's, there's this force that's changing us forever. It's called digital transformation, acceleration of technology, you know, I, I looked at Jonathan, I looked somewhere that the average R&D is 17 to 20% of the manufacturers out there, which means, guess what, Mr. Customer, your technology is changing. That thing you're buying today is obsolete two, three years from now. What are you going to do about it? What's the financial model behind it? So there's these layers of complexity a leader has to manage. And what what do you see is this framework that Tim's talking about, how it's going to impact 337 and what you do? Yeah, so I think the, the main takeaway from what Tim just said is the empathy for the consumer of your service, product, et cetera. So, so Tim sees it and says, I need to listen. I need to listen to whoever is going to receive my product. And so it's very unusual. And this is, a, I think, a, a, a basic uh, thing that Tim and I have both subscribed to back when I was a security director was that we're a service organization. So we provide service and value. And so to, I think for ESRM to work, you have to subscribe to that at some level. So those are like table stakes. And so take that same mindset and apply it to the technology side of um, that I'm no longer just uh, locking a door or keeping the bad guys out. I'm providing an experience and it differs based on the characteristics and concerns and issues and challenges of my consumer, of my end user. So looking at like account-based marketing where you're getting very specific. So it, I'm not sure when this will publish, but my colleague Hillary is writing a newsletter tomorrow on this very topic around how you know, are you tired of getting emails that say, hello, first name? Do you need security? If so, buy our lock, right? It's like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? But if someone reached out to me and I was, you know, worked at, at a, a healthcare facility and they were very specific to say, we know that your top three challenges today are this, this, and this. We know that because we know healthcare and security better than anybody else, how we can help you solve your biggest problems. And I read that and I go, they're right or they're close, or, you know, it's like, it's, it touched me, I understand it. And now I feel like they can make my life easier. I feel like that's what Tim is doing for his colleagues at his company is he makes it easier for them to participate in security. So security technology companies, especially right now, as the barriers of entry are lowering and technology and data are becoming democratized, meaning anyone has access to an algorithm or an AI engine that can tell you what backpack is red, 
Like nobody, nobody cares about that anymore. It's not a differentiator. So when everybody can do it, you need to realize that doing it right for the right person is what matters, not just the, avail- the ability to do it. And so understanding the personas of your end user, what matters to them, and the fact that you might not be able to just take the same widget and peanut butter spread it across the industry, like that's not going to work anymore. It has to get very specific. There has to be verticalization. There has to be focus. And maybe it's not in the technology. Maybe it's in the storytelling. Maybe you need somebody who's worked at a technology company to go sell to a technology company because they understand the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's where I'm seeing the shift of companies getting more verticalized. Are they going to do it right? I mean, that's the thing. You can't just take a guy or a gal and say, you're going to focus on healthcare and they don't know anything about healthcare. So there has to be that, that kind of um, that match of passion where you understand it and you care about it, getting back to that empathy and that kindness. Like, I feel like that has to be connected there. Not just I'm driven because I think I have the best opportunity to meet my sales quota in that vertical, but I actually know about it and I care about it. And so, so I think that's where I see you know, those things coming together. The, um, what just struck me as you were talking is the same scarcity problem we had in the leadership mindset that Tim was referring to applies to technology manufacturers too, especially in this day and age of the onus is on integration. The, if, if we're gonna get to machine learning and different degrees of automation and this protective mindset, this wall, this moat that many of the manufacturers have done around their technology and their business model, it's just not, right for these times. Agreed. And it's not going to, and it's not going to last because like I, I, I submit to you that, that the hardware is going to continue to be de-emphasized software is going to rule the day and the ability to integrate software through, through basic APIs is a game changer. And we're going to be, our industry is going to, they've already seen this with like the Vercadas of the world and those who have de- determined that an easier conversation to have and an easier budget to capture is with IT and technology folks who understand the models of reoccurring revenue and SaaS. And instead of trying to shove that into a legacy security industry that may not be comfortable with it. And so, so that's happening already. And and the pandemic has just expedited everything. So things that were maybe three, five years out are now happening right in front of us. And so, and, and again, that, that scarcity mindset of I need it all and, and our industry kind of walling themselves off from the uh, co-opetition principles of saying, well, you know, let's just figure out how to do it together. And, you know, tides will raise all boats and we'll create new things. I just wrote a newsletter article last week about, the fallacy of our concept of integration that it's actually interfaces that we do today. We just kind of connect things together that, you know, output beeps and bops and it doesn't create new experiences. An integration is two things creating a new thing, not two things just connecting. That's an interface. And so there's a, there's a distinction between those two things. And I don't feel that we have true integration in the security industry because we don't want to let company A connect with us and create a better thing. Because how are we going to monetize that? What are our shareholders going to think about? How are we going to go have those conversations with integrators to give them, you know, their 40% uptick from that? So like there's these like underlying things with then layer into these 
you know, the, the egos and the discomfort and all the other kind of underlying uh, scarcity concepts that are, that are the antithesis of what, of what Tim's talking about. So applying kind of that same continuous improvement ideological concept that's the, the, the foundation of ESRM plus the empathetic customer-focused activity that Tim has embedded into his program on the technology side will give you that same positive output that, that Tim's experienced, the ability of the machine to run and run seamlessly. Um, and by seamlessly, I don't mean without problems. He talked about incidents happen. So seamless doesn't mean no problem. Seamless means running, issue happens, address the issue, bring the feedback in, course correct, adjust, keep the machine running. Yep. So, th so there's a nuance to that. Do we have time to drop one more concept in that's kind of pivotal to this mindset? Or are we a Absolutely. Although we will not keep to our 20, 30 minutes, but keep going. All right. So uh, ESRM teaches. Um, wait, wait, let me put another log on the fire. Here we go. <laughs> nice. Uh, ESRM teaches that uh, you should understand why you're doing the things you do and what the value is, and then is the business recognizing that value? And a lot of security practitioners are like, oh, I don't wanna ask that question because that's inviting trouble. What if they don't agree? What if they don't see it? Um, and a lot of ESRM is talking about how to define what you do in compared to the risk so that you can get that perception and create that, that uh, recognized value. I'll take it a step further in my leadership model, I believe that curiosity supports self-control. So I myself have decided, uh, this is not a natural human thing to do, that consequences do not motivate me to the left or the right. They don't motivate me to move at all. And in fact, my team believes that things are going to happen. And even when bad consequences are produced, discipline does not ensue unless there was maliciousness on part of my team. Because we all have to be able to fail and make mistakes and learn and iterate. And so if when those consequences come, when the bad report comes, when the, the quote unquote hate comes, if you actually lean into it and just say, I'm not expecting this, help me understand your perspective. And you lean in with curiosity and you do that assessment you don't get defensive. You don't ruin the relationship. You don't say things that you have to take back later. You listen and you question and you say, let me think about that. Let me see if I can line it up with the facts that I know. Can we come back and have this conversation when I have a little more understanding so that we can kind of align here? And that is what I do with my team. That is what I do with my superiors. That is what I do with my business clients. You know, bad outcomes happen sometimes. Consequences roll down, but the consequences themselves shouldn't make you react in a way that changes things. You should lean in with curiosity. And that curiosity, instead of the reflexive pushback, it produces self-control and better relationships and a clearer understanding of what is actually going on and what is worth fixing. Does that make sense? Not only does it make sense, but... If everyone's been tracking here, we just had a great conversation that's multidimensional in scope and can be applied specifically to a sector called physical security, but is really about life. Um, 
Tim Wenzel and Jonathan Harris, Harris have nailed a leadership principle that's rate based on a core value. Uh, it's based on a practice of inquiry and finding the why in every situation. It's a practice resting on relationships and that there's value in each one of us and in our insights and perspectives. And this will lead to quality people, quality processes, and quality tools. I thank you both for a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you.